I've always had this view that you wake up every day with a little nugget of creative juice for the day, you know, and you can either use it or waste it, you know, uh, and uh, my view is therefore you write first, do everything else, write first, get up, get out of your bed, go to your desk, work. Kevin Larmer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we have an interview with Salman Rushdie. Plus readings by poets Nicole Seeley and Don Lundy Martin. And so much more. So stick around. October issue is here. It's the MFA issue. It is a really big issue. It's huge. Um, it's over 200 pages. It's a doorstop of an issue. Yeah. It took us a really long time <laughs> <laughs> to put this thing together. It's the 11th annual MFA issue. And um, we the, the special section on MFA programs is over 30 pages. It's a lot of pages. It is. The highlight, the centerpiece of that section is the 2018 MFA Index, uh, which includes in-depth information about more than 200 MFA programs, full residency and low residency, in this sort of simple-to-use uh, chart that's broken up by region and includes a lot of a lot of really useful information, I think, including the size of the program, the genres that they offer, how much funding they give, the cost of living, application fees, stuff like that. All of the information you need to know when you're starting your MFA research mm-hmm. if you are thinking of going to a program this year. That's right. We also have a suite of articles about the MFA um, running the gamut from people who did not go to an MFA mm-hmm. to those who went and then decided to leave an MFA. Mm-hmm. We have some advice to MFA applicants. We have something that we call the intangibles. Right, although uh, we were calling it we weren't really calling it, but it was the intangibles for quite for too long yeah. during the production process. It existed in our galleys as the word intangibles right. for at least a week right. before we caught it. That that word actually ceases to have meaning after a while. Um, <laughs> yes. Staring at that for three weeks, mm-hmm. intangibles. Which is something that happens to me a lot during the proofing stages mm-hmm. of the magazine in general. Like by the time I'm looking at the third galley, I will look at a specific word. Yep. And it no longer has any meaning. Right. One, one other one in this <laughs> in this issue was the word just the word throughout. I just kept looking at it in a right. paragraph and was like, "That's definitely spelled wrong." Right. What is that word? Right. Which is why we have multiple pairs of eyes uh, <laughs> looking at uh, every word that that makes its way into the magazine. Mm-hmm. It's a process. It is. Of course, the new issue isn't only about the MFA. Uh, we have many more articles. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Literary Life Department has six of them, six articles. Which might be a record, I, I think, think it might be. There's essays by Daniel Wallace, uh, Joyce Maynard, Julia Fierro, and others. 
Uh, we also have a really great article by Rigoberto Gonzalez. It's an installment of First, and it's about Javier Zamora and Erica L. Sanchez, both of whom uh, have new debut poetry books. Mm-hmm. Javier Zamora's book is called Unaccompanied, and Erica L. Sanchez's book is Lessons on Expulsion. And uh, both poets are Latino, and they both come from immigrant families, and their books deal sort of with their immigrant stories and identity. Um, so Rigoberto talks to them um, both about that, and it's a really fantastic article, mm-hmm. and their books are both really great. Mm-hmm. You know what else we have in this issue? Mm. An interview with Lena Dunham. The Lena Dunham. Yes, the Lena Dunham. So one of the last episodes of Girls, her very popular HBO series. (laughs) Perhaps you've heard of it. (laughs) Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, It had a scene in which Lena's character, Hannah, is reading an issue of Poets and Writers magazine. Mm -hmm. She's on the train heading, I think, up to the school. Maybe back from the school. Spoiler alert, where she gets a job (laughs) teaching. Yes. But she's sitting on the train... Just like listening to her iPod reading an issue. Yeah, she's rocking out, writers. and she is thoroughly enjoying <laughs> her issue of Poets and Writers. She looks pretty immersed in yep. it, I would say. Yep. Um, it wasn't exactly a real issue of the magazine, <laughs> but it was flattering nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had an occasion to interview Lena about her new book imprint with Random House. Uh, it's called Lenny, uh, and it is an offshoot of the online newsletter that she and Jenny Connor. Uh, launched in 2015, and they have their first book out now. It's called uh, Sour Heart. It's a story collection by Jenny Zhang. And uh, so I spoke with her a bit about uh, the new imprint and whether or not they're going to be publishing any poetry and um, her advice for authors. So you can check that out online. Salman Rushdie is on our cover. The great Salman Rushdie. Yes, indeed. He is one of those authors who has just sort of always been a part of my literary consciousness, you know? Yeah, totally. I feel like that's probably true for a lot of readers and writers. It Mm -hmm. certainly is for me. Um, I feel like he awakened my literary consciousness Mm -hmm. uh, a bit when I was in college. I think I was like a sophomore. One of my early lit classes, I read Midnight's Children, and I remember it uh, distinctly being a book that just blew my mind uh, and kind of blew my understanding open. Yeah, definitely. He has a new novel out. Uh, It's called The Golden House. And uh, I asked novelist Porchista Kapoor to interview Salman Rushdie. Um, I tagged along. Um, we went to the office of Andrew Wiley, uh, Salman Rushdie's agent. And uh, Porchista and Salman Rushdie had uh, this epic interview. Um, they talked about the new novel. They talked about myth, politics, identity, social media. Um, it, was, it was epic. So we're going to listen to a clip of that conversation now. Can you share how you wrote this book? Or I mean, I don't know if every book you write is different when you compose it. Because this is, it's incredible how you weave in all these plot lines and that it's so coherent. Well, the problem is that the only answer to that is most of it is just in my head. Mm. You know, I mean, I I, I do have, I mean, obviously I have lots of notes, you know, and and, and I have the notes both in the form of computer files and in the form of notebooks. and like on my iPhone, you know, if I think of something. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so I have all that. And that's useful until there's a point where I think, okay, I, I think I know how to start. At least I sort of think I know what it goes this way, you know. And, yeah. and then what happens, or again, it's changed. Because when I was younger, I needed much more 
formal architecture. You know, I, I actually needed to know, here's the skeleton and this is what you hang the flesh on, you know. Right. So, uh, and that really I would work out quite substantially before I started writing. You know? and, and with my sorrow and shame and everything like that. And then it began to change actually with the satanic verses because there was a bit where I, I wasn't even sure it was one novel, you know, because no. there, there, there are all these different stories. Right. You know? and I thought maybe these are different books, you know, and, and uh, it was only gradually that I understood how they, how they fitted together. And I began, as a result of that process, I began to get a little looser and freer in the, in the area of plotting. And gradually have come to the point where I can, I'm much more willing to just freewheel and see what happens. You know? and that was certainly very much the case in the last novel, you know, where, where a, a lot of it was, where there was probably a year of it was improvisation, and just taking a scene where it go, where does it go today? And I mean, of course, it's a wasteful form of writing because a lot of it doesn't work. You know? right. and, and so you have to abandon all kinds of pathways you've gone down that just end up not seeming to go anywhere interesting, you know, so, and characters shift and change. I mean, there was a character in that novel, uh, this girl called Blue Yasmin, who is a storyteller who goes to things like the moth, you know, mm. and, and story slams at the Lower East Side and right. so on. And she wasn't like that at all to begin with. I had this quite other character who was much older, mm. who was almost a bag lady, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who was sort of walking around the city with with bags, you know. <laughs> and, and then every so often she would walk into one of these places and tell the best stories of anybody and then she'd go and sleep in Tompkins Square, you know. So, um, and then I suddenly remembered that in Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Jailbird, it's Jailbird, there's, there's a character of a bag lady who turns out to be the richest woman in New York and lives in a penthouse at the top of the Chrysler building. Oh my God, <laughs> that's amazing, yeah. and, and I thought, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid this is Kurt Vonnegut's bag lady that I have somehow accidentally borrowed. You know, and, and so I had to get rid of her, send her back to Kurt Vonnegut's novel. <laughs> and kind of think about think about that character in another way. Because I wanted to have the storyteller. You know, and, but, and she became just a very different kind of storyteller. Yeah. So that book was very much developed like that, by like trial and error, you know. And uh, this book, a bit less, bit less so. Mm. Uh, but still, as I say, you know, I completely changed my idea about the narrator, you know, when I'd already been working on it for a while, and, and other things also just shifted and changed. But in this book, I mean, I had, what I had quite clearly was I had the, the setting, you know, to have, to have that sort of microcosm of the McDougal Sullivan Gardens, you know, uh, it was kind of wonderful because it gave me a theatre, you know, and, and became a little like rear window, you know, where everybody's lives are watched by everybody else's lives, you know, and uh, so I liked that. I thought that was something which was a kind of organizing principle of the novel, which would which would be very helpful, and was very helpful. And then I had him, I had, you know, Nero from the beginning, and I had the story, that's the thing about, you know, the whole backstory of why he is who he is, you know. Um, I had that really pretty clearly from the beginning, and, and uh, I mean, there was the question: How do I exactly? When do I to reveal what? Right. You know, that that I had to really work out by just trying it. You know, there was a bit in the sort of earlier version of the book when I withheld information more. You know, that, that even that that what is now quite early in the book, which is the the attack on the Taj Hotel in Bombay, you know, was originally withheld 
much more because originally I was going along with in a way that the way the characters say that they were not going to name the city they came from, they're not going to say anything about it, etc. I thought, well, maybe the novel should do that, you know, and, and also withhold all that information. Right. And then I thought, no, I'm just withholding too much, you know, and I, I, mean, I don't have to agree with that, I don't have to do what they're doing, you know, and so I thought, okay, well, then I can let it in, you know, and, and, and the book became better, I think, by allowing some of that material to be earlier than it originally was. But, so a certain amount of it was just experimentation, but, but I had him and his story very solidly. You know. But the thing that developed a lot in the doing of it was the life sto the stories of the three sons, you know, and, and, and the directions they went in, uh, many of which were quite unexpected. Are you writing every day? How yeah. does it work? You find yeah. time every day to yeah. write for a minute. Yeah, when, I mean, when I'm writing a novel, yes. I mean, when I'm writing a novel, novel comes first. You know, right. that's it. And everything else has to take a moment. Do you carve out a set amount of, like, really yeah. hours? Well, I've always had this view that you wake up every day with a little nugget of creative juice mm -hmm. for the day, you know? Yeah. And you can either use it or waste it, you know? Uh, and uh, my view is, therefore, you write first. Do everything else, write first. Get up, get out of your bed, go to your desk, work. Right. You know, For how many hours? Well, I mean, usually a couple of hours until I know what I'm doing that day. You know, mm -hmm. until I sort of set whatever I, whatever it is that day, I sort of got it going. Right. And then I can go and like have a shower and get dressed yeah, yeah. and, you know, etc. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then go back to it. But everything else, you know, paying bills, and yeah. forget it. You know, so do the work first, because I think otherwise it doesn't get done. Right. You know, it doesn't get done. I mean, novel, novel is a long thing. You know, and you ha I mean, I've always thought of the novel as, as you know, it's, that's the long distance runner, that's the marathon. You know? right. and, and it doesn't mean that a marathon runner is a more gifted athlete than a sprinter, right. but it's just, it's that kind of athletics. You yeah. know? It's, it's uh, long form. You have to chip away at it. Yeah. You, know? you have to let the mileposts go by and, and just trust that one day the finish line will approach. So Nicole Seeley and Don Lundy Martin have new books out. Nicole Seeley's debut, Ordinary Beast, is published this month by Echo. And Don Lundy Martin um, has a new book out, uh, Good Stock, Strange Blood, published by Coffee House Press. And of course, uh, Nicole Seeley is the executive director of Cave Canem. And Don Lundy Martin teaches in the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh and is co-director of the Center for African American Poetry and Poetics. And they actually spent a week together uh, not long ago at the Cave Canem Writers Retreat um, at the University of Pittsburgh in Greensburg. So they sat down and had a really interesting conversation uh, for our new issue. And we asked both of them to read poems from their, their new books. So we're going to listen to those now. This is Dawn Lundy Martin, and I'm reading from Goodstock Strange Blood. A glow this bent. A glow this bent body, itch of layer, not of hair, they call us Negro. To stand broad-footed in sensation of being lit up. No monument, only blood earth, warm salve to open throat bone. How to live between mother and time. 
as if born into the self, watching the self already made formless than out of clay. Feel the hump of our drape. Hear the body, flesh inevitable, unsatiated hunger like a whip. Instrumental fissure, instrumental fish, whose rasp, a whip, a book, a story left in the dark body. To reach fingers out toward shine of morning, eyes squinted, and find there only cord grass, some smoke or warning. Our name. Our name. What is our name? Where are the buttons holding us in place? What is place outside of time? Outside of memory, unstitched, unsnatched, swell into our mother's, quote, blackened skin, her, quote, tarnished whiteness, her rope shackled to grandfather's black neck. A picket, a thicket, rice, cotton, sugar, potatoes, cow peas, turnips, and rye. Oh, Lord, thank you, Mr. Hopeton, not selling my boy. This is the body bending over another. Textures, we know them. Textures, we know them. Bruises, our misses, homespun cape, linen hung by its lips, sway, a useless body, trash boy. What is a dance for being? A step toward nothingness. Gray landscape, purple feet, I remember, I swear, the limp relative to nothing. Scraps, bright against sea, migrant legs almost drowned already, a narrative wired in cells, desolate root. We succumbed, we succumbed head by measure, by weight of black sheath and organs, legacy that lingers, a hip thrust. We wait in wings, expanse spread across darkening blue sky. We shut shades, huff into wings, shrink bones of self. What you drag, your banjo, your braided necklace, disappearance into mole, stink of flesh become flesh. Come now, arms and arches open to pocket all dejected souls. I'm Nicole Seeley, and I'll be reading two poems, the first of which is called Imagine Sisyphus Happy, followed by Object Permanence. Imagine Sisyphus Happy. Give me tonight to be inconsolable, so the death drive does not declare itself, so the moonlight does not convince sunrise. I was born before sunrise, when morning masquerades as night, the temperature of blood quivering like a mouth in mourning. How do we author our gentle birth, the height we were? Were we gods rolling stars across a sundog sky, the same as scarabs? We fit somewhere between god and mineral, 
angel and animal, believing a thing as sacred as the sun rises and falls like an ordinary beast. Deer sniff lifeless fawns before leaving. Elephants encircle the skulls and tusks of their dead, none wanting to leave the bones behind, none knowing their leave will lessen the loss. But birds pluck their own feathers. Dogs lick themselves to wound. Allow me this luxury. Give me tonight to cut and salt the open. Give me a shovel to uproot the mandrake and listen for its scream. Give me a face that toils so closely with stone. It is itself stone. I promise to enter the flesh again. I promise to circle, to ascend. I promise to be happy tomorrow. Object permanence for John. We wake as if surprised the other is still there each petting the sheet to be sure. How have we managed our way to this bed, beholden to heat like dawn indebted to light? Though we're not so self-important as to think everything has led to this, everything has led to this. There's a name for the animal love makes of us, named, I think, like rain for the sound it makes. You are the animal after whom other animals are named. Until there's none left to laugh. Days will start with the same startle and end with caterpillars gorged on milkweed. Oh, how we entertain the angels with our brief animation. Oh, how I'll miss you when we're dead. So, you know, two of my favorite annual features of the magazine are the debut poetry roundup and the first fiction roundup. We've been doing those for a number of years, but one thing that we haven't done is a debut literary nonfiction roundup. Until now. Until now. (laughs) Yeah, we've been talking about doing this for a while, so um, I was very excited to be able to tackle it for this issue. As I wrote in the introduction to the piece, Literary nonfiction can be kind of, I don't know, a a difficult thing to try to debut. Um, As a nonfiction writer myself, I I understand that it can be really hard to market and pitch a book of debut nonfiction. You know, most of what gets published in the nonfiction world is memoirs by celebrities, internet personalities, things like that. Um, And then the really good works of literary nonfiction that do get published are often I think it's pretty fair to say by writers who have a couple books under their belt already. But in putting this issue together, um, it was it was a hopeful landscape, I would say. Um, so we poured through about three dozen books of debut nonfiction. Um, so that means essay collections, um, literary memoirs, 
And there was a lot of really, really good stuff, um, most of which was published by independent presses, but some, some large presses in there. And we selected five books of that pile to feature. And we asked each author to write a sort of micro essay about the process of putting those books together, their inspirations, their obsessions, um, why they chose this form or why they had to tell their story in this form. Um, and we also asked one of those five featured authors, Lina Maria Ferreira Cabeza Venegas, to read from her debut collection, Don't Come Back, which was published by Mad River Books in January. Uh, it is a really fantastic book of kind of hybrid work. It's personal essay, but also um, bilingual. There are translations and lots of weird diagrams. Um, and she weaves in Colombian myths. It's super cool. Um, and we asked her to read an excerpt from that book, and we're going to hear that right now. Pain pays the income of each precious thing, like this. They drop this girl off at school after a visit to the dentist, midway through the day when all we do is throw stones at the rain. Her gums are numb, so incredibly numb. She opens her mouth wide and digs her fingernails into them, swearing all the while that she does not feel a thing. Or like this. I hold the cat that has never liked to be held against my shoulder while you try to clip its claws. I press it down against my body like a baby full of helium and needles. It tries to wriggle out of my grasp. It digs its claws deep into my shoulder and right above my ribs, climbing shoes on a mountainside, spigots on a maple tree, little itchy dots and pinpricks of red sap. Or better yet, Jesus, who looks after the garden behind my elementary school classroom in Cali. Jesus, Jesus, but only the teachers ever call him that. A notch below their social class and two below ours, he lets us yell, run, chant, lets us call him Chuchito Chuchito, a round man in a blue overall jumpsuit, chest hair caught in his zipper, machete hanging from an unused belt loop. Chuchito, tiene caña, tiene caña? Whom we'd surround and harass like so many featherless, wide-mouthed birds in a nest. A ringo, ringo, spinning and chanting and begging and pleading, tiene caña, tiene caña, tiene caña, until he'd take his machete from his hip like a holy staff, a brass serpent, a jaguar's tail, porfis, chucho, porfis, pleasees, please, 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 and hurriedly cut sugar cane down for us. Swift, sweet, soft, sugar-soaked pulp still sheathed in splintered stock. Grant us Jesus our daily cane. One swing to pluck, another to split, and we ran swinging green stalks like swords above our heads. Like this girl back in school after a visit to the dentist, telling us her gums were numb, so incredibly numb, she opened her mouth wide and dug her fingernails into them. See? Nothing. But it's hard to believe, and we tell her she's faking. We know that everything that hurts always hurts and hurts right away and sometimes for a long time after. So she reaches for a pencil. I'm not lying. She drools. She protests. She pecks a tiny path of graphite holes across her gums with a pencil, colorblind stars and a pink sky. Cannot feel it. Not at all. But we shake our heads. We say no and no, no, faker because maybe we don't believe her, or maybe we want to see what else she cannot feel, so she reaches for a stapler. Like this, 
my mother sitting in a cemetery coffee shop. Up top the metal table, a wooden box full of her older sister's ashes. She lifts the lid and presses down on the ash-filled plastic bag, surprised by how little is left, how thorough the ovens, the fire. Ten years of cancer, hospitals, referrals, intubations, ambulances, electric beeps and iodine-color hospital hallways. Ten years awake and asleep, waiting rooms and induced comas. A thousand needle mosquitoes and a handful of veins, a hundred blood-soaked tubes clinking, a lifetime sedated and punctured, and it all fits in a box, a little wooden box. So she presses down and feels something sharp in the ashes. Do you want to feel? she asks me, because not everything's burned all the way through. Fingertips down on sharp bits of charred bone. Like Chucho, quietly going back into his garden, machete swinging from his hip, while we chewed through math class until the edges of the stalk made our gums bleed and we drooled sweet blood water on grid paper. Like it won't hurt when the sugar dries up, when she doesn't wake up. Unfelt sores and private scars. My mother holding her older sister one last time while the cemetery men kick stones at the road. A final moment before placing her ashes in the ossuary beside their father and grandfather. Her hands are on the box, her eyes are on the lid, and her voice cracks, splinters, pierced and piercing. No one, she says, can call you names now, Chiki. A girl dropped off after the visit to the dentist, opening her mouth so wide we can hear the sides crack as we stick our heads in like lion tamers a single-file line of staples above the gum line while the Novocaine wears off. That's it for this episode. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about the November-December independent publishing issue. That's right. November-December. The summer's nearly over. I know. That's depressing. But you know what's it. more depressing? Hmm. Not hearing from anybody about this podcast. Oh, yeah. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Do you like us? We've been Do doing this us? for... <laughs> <laughs> we've been doing this for over two years. Uh, we've had original interviews with Salman Rushdie, Lydia Yaknovich, uh, George Saunders... Michael Shabon. Colson Whitehead. Um, there's been some... Jhumpa Lahiri. Yeah. There's been some pretty good good things on this podcast, but um, we haven't actually heard from anybody about it. I assume people are listening. I hope people are I listening. Hope, I hope so. It's kind of like just like, call, you know, we're calling out into a dark, vast cave. And it's, it's cold in here. It's cold. We're only hearing our own voices. It's cold, dark, and lonely. It's not... It doesn't warm us <laughs> to no. only hear ourselves. No. It's hot outside. It's cold in here. So you can find us on SoundCloud, on PW.org, on Stitcher, and on iTunes, where you can leave a little review, uh, which would be really great. Yeah, let us know what you think. You can uh, you can even say you hate it. We will definitely take that. But just let us know. Well, leave you, a star. Leave yeah. a review. Let us know you listened. If, if that's all you do, just say, I listened to this podcast. <laughs> that would be great. I would love that. Yeah. Um, so. Let us know. And uh, in the meantime, we'll be working on, on the next episode. So tune in next time. To Ampersand. Ampersand.
the Poets and Writers Podcast. Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Tours, Poddington Bear, Yacht, Black Ant, Evan Schaefer, and the Vivisectors. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including the conversation between Nicole Seeley and Don Lundy Martin, and an interview with Lena Dunham at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Ampersand.